0: Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Next Level Sunday show. I'm your host, Tim Miller, with a special guest today, Democratic Congresswoman Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, maybe the most or one of the top three or four most interesting Democrats in the House of Representatives. It's a great conversation. I'm going to explain why in a minute. I'm sure many of you this week have an insatiable desire for uh, news and takes and images of the supposedly 215-pound LOL, Donald Trump, being arraigned for the fourth time, and the parade of absurdity on the debate stage in Milwaukee this week. Well, the board's got plenty for you on that, if you missed it. I was on with Charlie on Friday on the Flagship podcast. Do check that out, though I must warn you, we did a lot of talking about how right we were, maybe about the most obvious thing in history to be right about Donald Trump, but nonetheless... On Thursday night we had Thursday Night Bulwark for Bulwark Plus members, if you're not a subscriber, JVL, Mona, and, and Bill Crystal gave a breakdown of the debate. On Wednesday night on, on this feed, on the Next Level feed, we brought in Tom Nichols of The Atlantic and Ben Smith of Semaphore to talk about the debate. So you can go check out that there. Over on Snapchat or YouTube, we have My Not My Party, where I gave a live behind-the-scenes view from the MSNBC studios in New York and uh, gave my takes about the debate and showed a little bit about what it's like to be a pundit man on a big debate night. So, just a ton of information for you there. Also go to the bulwark.com, you know, and sign up for our newsletter if you have it. But the Democrats still have some stuff going on here too. I mean, obviously, the Republican party agita is at an all-time high, you know, the fights between this, you know, the small normie set and the growing maga set, Vivek versus Nikki. You know, Donald Trump and the arraignment, Elise Stefanik tweeting Trump won, plenty of drama on the Republican side. But within the Democratic coalition, you know, there is increasing concern about this question of how can Democrats win back some of these working class voters? How can the party avoid becoming just a party of college educated voters across all races, right? How can they do better with working class white voters? How can they turn out working class black and Hispanic voters that are going to be more Democratic-aligned? How can they do better in rural America? Well, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez is about the most interesting person to talk to about that. She is the owner of a car repair shop in, in Washington. She defeated, you know, maybe the most notified candidate Joe Kent, who ran on the MAGA America First platform in Washington in a red district, so she represents a red, largely rural district in Washington. She's gotten under some of the progressive skin. There was a big Slate article this week saying that she's a Kirsten Cinema of the House. We talk about that. It is important that if we are going to beat back the MAGA authoritarian threat, you know, the Democrats need to make sure that they are appealing to as many different demographics as possible: rural, downscale whites non-college educated voters of all races really but particularly whites are the areas where the arrow is moving the wrong direction marie gluzenkamp perez has some thoughts about how to fix that we get into some policy specifics some of her votes areas where she's disagreed with the party you know we do a little dunking on joe kent this is an important conversation you should enjoy it up next congresswoman marie Glusenkamp perez but first our friends at acid tongue enjoy mugshot weekend peace Welcome to the Bulwark's Sunday Next Level Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Miller. I'm here today with Congresswoman Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, who's coming at us live from Washington with our most beautiful backdrop I think we've had on the show so far. Congresswoman, I want to acknowledge my biases up top here, okay? So you beat Joe Kent, the most (laughs) noxious GOP F boy that ran for Congress last year in a pretty co- competitive category. Like that, hate that dude. And you have you're kind of like a mavericky Democrat, so uh, you know you're you're already kind of tickling a couple of my pleasure centers here. So anyway, welcome to the podcast. Hopefully, we'll be good. Nice to meet you. Thank you. You said uh, in our little green room there, you said you were competing at the Timber Festival this weekend. Where are you? Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I live in rural Skamania County, and uh, it's a it's a big timber county, or it was, and we are in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, and uh, I, so yeah, so we compete every year in the Timber Carnival.
0: What does that competition entail?
1: Well, so there's like, I think there's like 10 events, two days, and I competed in four of them on Friday. I kind of choked on the axe throwing this year, which I'm super annoyed by. But I got first place in the obstacle pole, which would be like run up a 20-degree pole. And the guys start a chainsaw and like cut the end off. Women tie a ribbon around it. And then choker setter, I got third place. And then, yeah, I actually I bombed in axe throwing, which was too bad okay,
0: so this is where I want to start i I want to understand kind of a, of whence you came so i'm a I'm a gay suburban boy who d- wouldn't even i don't think I could even throw an axe. I don't know know what would happen if I would endanger myself if i tr- <laughs> if I picked up an axe, I think so in your childhood, were you interested in power tools? How did you end up becoming a <laughs> auto repair shop owner living out in the sticks in axe throwing competitions?
1: well, so my mom's side is all from Washington state since before it was a state and they're all loggers, or, you know, there many many loggers and I mean I had a lot of respect for that world and the stories and I love, you know, I love being outside. I love like physical work and so when I met my husband, I was a bike mechanic. I was running a little like bike co-op at my college and he was an auto mechanic, doing fixies. He's a mobile mechanic. Oh my god, so many fixies <laughs> in that era. Yes. Um Like the secret is that most bike mechanics actually want to be auto mechanics. Carburetors are like super cool, so I started following him around and eventually got him to marry me. And uh, we moved out to Skamania County, built our house out here. And I heard about the axe throwing, I heard about the timber carnival, and I was like, oh my god! And my uncle gave me one of his axes. I knew he competed. They do this thing like you go up a pole, pole climbing, uh, to set the line to drag. Anyways, so that he he had done that and. So I knew about it from him, and yeah, that's how I got into it. But it's fun stuff. I, I know this sounds like people are like whatevers, but I think that one of the things that's going on under the rock of American culture is that there's this mass homogenization and this real loss of like place-based politics and things that actually, like that stuff matters on us like a heart level. I think when we lose a connection to the specific things going on in our communities and everything becomes nationalized, like. That homogenization allows for really the ugliest parts of political polarization and homogenization. And I think it's our duty to fight that and to turn back to a a place-based politics.
0: Yeah, that kind of ties into where I wanted to go next, which was, so, I mean, the Democrats have struggled so much in in these types of communities. I may be a little less in Washington, but, but then in, in other places, I've spent Louisiana, uh, obviously deeply struggling here, but John Bell Edwards is the governor here who kind of has had success and has cut against that. Like w- when you think about, you know, why the party has struggled in kind of rural areas and among working class folks and working people, do you think that that is cultural policy both? Like, how would you kind of grade what the issue is and how, you know, maybe the party could do better?
1: Yeah, I think that there were some like dorks with calculators who got the math wrong and believe that we can, you know, govern by convincing college educated Republicans to vote uh, with that hey, Okay,
0: okay, calm down now. Now. Sorry, <laughs> no, sorry, 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 Tim.
1: Okay. Yeah, no.
0: They, they, they <laughs> picked up well, ones and of and us. I <laughs> mean, there are dozens of us out there that you picked up <laughs> uh, uh, Congressman. Anyway, <laughs> continue.
1: But so they just sort of washed their hands and said like, well, we don't need, you know, blue collar working class people. We don't need rural America anymore. And And I think that A, the math is wrong on that. And I think B, like when you narrow your focus that way and just say like, oh, well, you're not smart enough to get what we're doing. Like, actually, I think the party is not smart enough to get what we're doing. (laughs) Like, there's a real wisdom, I think, in rural communities and in in blue collar communities. And and to just say like, oh, you know what? We don't need to understand that anymore. Like, you know, and walk away. It's a real impoverishment of, of the values of the Democratic Party. And I think that, you know, a lot of it in Washington state stems back to, Timber policy, forest policy. So, my mom's from Forks, Washington, which is the epicenter of the spotted owl fiasco. You know, they like shut down the timber industry and a lot of woods over an owl that is still struggling today. Like, today they pay people to go out with like potato guns and like beanbag barred owls to try and protect spotted owls. Like, it continues to be just a fiasco. And
0: I mean, nothing against the spotted owl, but just a prioritization balance.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I feel like, a lot of rural people, we sense, like, we're the first ones to pay for things all the time. And, you know, whether it's jobs or, you know, school quality or infrastructure or whatever it is, it feels like a lot of folks think, like, well, if you were smart, you would have, like, moved to the city and, you know, gotten a better job. There's a
0: condescending element to it. Oh, for sure. So here's my, like, one of my big pet thieves with my former party, the Republicans, now is that, like, they've made this pivot to performatively act like they care about what, you know, the forgotten man, et cetera, in rural America, but like the substance hasn't backed it up at all, right? I mean, it probably wouldn't be the party for me if they went more populist economically and and on immigration and on foreign, you know, and engaged in a more direct way. Uh, you know, I mean, Trump put Kellyanne Conway in charge of his opioid commission, at, you know, and it's just all of this, it's just bullshit. And like, they don't actually care about these people. It's pretend, right? It's a cultural pose. But in a lot of ways, they've let these folks down. So that should be an opportunity for the Democrats, but it doesn't seem like they're taking it. And so I just like, how could the Democrats kind of like fill that void that I think that the Republicans are leaving?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'm on the agriculture committee. And so when I'm home, I'm doing a lot of farm bill listening tours and farm tours and things like that. And one of the things that comes up over and over, it's like, you know, these producers and farmers are not talking about kicking people off food stamps they're talking about market consolidation as what's killing the family farm you know it's not that culture war bullshit it's it is listen like there are two corporations that will i can contract with to grow chickens you know and they're both going to crush me from either side in a vice and my kids don't want to take over the farm because they see what it looks like to be a player in a monopolistic uh, economy So, you know, I think that we should certainly be leading on some of these like fundamentally antitrust issues, like, like right to repair is a really big deal. It's one of the reasons that compelled me to run for office. It's like you said, I own an auto repair shop.
0: Explain right to repair. I was going to ask you about that, but just since you mentioned it, explain what that is. Yeah.
1: Well, so on background, like we own an independent shop, which is a dying breed. It means we're not affiliated with a dealership or a manufacturer. Like we work on anything. It's not that... these cars aren't under warranty. They're like from the 90s.
0: You're doing those van remodels, like guys that want to move out to the woods and like live out of their van, (laughs) like you're doing those?
1: Actually, we do see a lot of those kinds, but we also see like the Gambler 500s of the world. But right to repair sort of started with tractors. John Deere was one of the worst. They started putting these chips on their tractors and only the dealerships could have the key to unlock that digital, you know, to get into the motor. And Farmers at all, some unknowingly signed terms of service contracts that said you can only get them fixed with dealership. Well, you know, there's like not enough dealerships ever to service. And all of this one year make and model tractor all basically glitched at the same time. It was hang season. There weren't enough dealerships to see and repair all these glitches. And because they were locked out, farmers couldn't do it themselves. You have a very narrow window to cut hay when it actually has nutrition value for stock. It's when the seed head is formed but hasn't fallen off the stock yet. And so imagine being like millions of dollars in debt. You've got a quarter million dollar piece of equipment sitting in the yard as yard art now, and you can't work on it because some asshole with an MBA like locked you out of it. And so half of them come out with like a, you know, pitchfork and demand right to repair. The other half, many of them actually go to Eastern Europe to get their tractors hacked. Uh, and there's a lot of national security risk to these rights repair issues, actually, because that's the alternative. There's so this
0: in the military. You had an amendment to the NDA that was on this too. Yeah. Our military yes. guys can't even How fix our shit in the field. Is that, is that really yes. true?
1: Yes. Yes. They have to get a technician to come out with their, you know, with their scan tool. Like it's crazy. With the purchasing power of the US military, we are still vulnerable in this way. You know, it is crazy to me. And so it's gone way too far and we're really at this fulcrum point where we have to start uh, assuring our right to, to fix our own stuff. And it's not just about the pocketbook issue or the morality of it. You know, again, it's one of those cultural things of like, we are a nation that really believes in DIY. Other countries aren't like this. My husband's German extraction. Like In Germany, people don't like paint their own walls or like fix their own plumbing. Like America is actually pretty unique in where we believe like, oh, people should all, you know, you should be able to do all this stuff. Um, that's our cultural heritage, and it's being eviscerated by uh, you know these terms of service and these monopolistic behaviors. And so, I believe in capitalism. Like I believe that you know you should be able to take your truck to get it fixed anywhere you want. And it's one of the most pragmatic ways that you can support the trades and support rural communities is by supporting right to repair legislation.
0: I mean, this is just tickling my former Republican pickle. I know you don't, you know, you don't want to recruit us over, but um, that one, that one, that one is I, that one aligns. So think it aligns working class from Democrats and people that have the independent American, you know, streak, that libertarian streak. I want to ask though; it's interesting hearing you talk about that. You have a depth of knowledge that comes from the experience, right, that you're bringing to the table. And I was reading, I got sent this memo by a Democratic staffer, Morgan Searcy, who had worked in politics. And she interviewed a bunch of staffers and it was like, what's wrong with the Democratic campaigns? And one of the things that they focus on, which is a fair point is that, like, Democrats' staff still doesn't reflect their coalition. You know, and that, like, there were cases where maybe there was a mid-level black staffer that, like, flagged why an ad that the campaign wanted to do was actually going to be kind of offensive in in the black community and that the, you know, kind of leadership didn't understand it. And I I think that's totally probably right and legit that the the Democratics, you know, kind of side should be making sure that they reflect America. They're obviously doing better than Republicans at that. But, like, not mentioning that memo ever is we should recruit more working class people we should recruit people more people from rural america like you uh-huh. know we should recruit uh-huh. more people that go to church uh-huh. twice a week right I, have yeah. you expressed that internally like what's your take on that
1: yeah oh yeah i mean that's one of the biggest problems is like there's a lot of lip service for egalitarianism but actually in in the beltway it is this super snobby like hyper credentialed and it just becomes like group think of of who's qualified and who's smart. And, you know, people never consider, well, you know, actually maybe somebody with a reading disability is actually really brilliant in many other ways that you don't have the intelligence to understand. Their concept of what makes a good candidate, it's like somebody with a JD and a trust fund and a built-in donor network and no And kids. talking
0: points and good at talking points.
1: <laughs> yeah, good at dodging questions, you know. I think people are tired of that. I think people want a Congress that looks like America. And, you know, to your point, like often in D.C., there's a real homogeneity to the kinds of people that want to be in D.C. And so... You know, to me, like, you know, when I'm trying to recruit staff, like I want people that don't really want to be in D.C., you know, <laughs> that's not yeah. their life. You know, they haven't been trying to do it since they were seven
0: yeah, that's cool. that
1: have experience in the trades or didn't go to college or I have a bipartisan staff. Yeah, diversity
0: is important, but like I have a bunch of races of, and everybody went to Princeton. Like it's still limiting the, yeah. the, the diversity yeah. element. You have a bipartisan staff? You've hired Republicans?
1: I do, yeah. I have a bipartisan staff. I have a staff, you know, not everyone on my staff went to college at all. You know, I have a broad range, and I think that's really important. Like, if you are right about something, like, you should be right in any context. Like, you don't need to have an echo chamber around you. I think it actually is, like, leads to a lot of narrow-mindedness to not have dissent in your own office.
0: So this is going to provide more fodder for something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, there, was, there was a Slate article this week, Some a woman, a Democratic activist named mm-hmm. Melissa Byrne. Um, she said about you, she's a cinema wannabe. How many votes has she taken that Joe Kent wouldn't have taken? I want to give you a chance to talk about both sides of that question. How do you respond to, to being compared to Kristen cinema? And and how many votes have you taken that Joe Kent wouldn't have taken? He was, Joe Kent's a white nationalist, <laughs> so I would assume quite a few. But I'll let you answer it.
1: Um. Yeah. Well, it is unhinged too strong yeah. a language? I have voted with my party eight out of ten times. I believe I've always. 10 out of 10 times I have voted with my district and that's my job. It is not to be a cheerleader for ideology. It's to reflect my district. And what they got so mad about was my, um, really pissed about my student loan vote. You know, I don't know where this Melissa person lives, but it's not Skamania County. You know, the state that would have benefited the most from student debt forgiveness was actually Washington DC because everyone's young there and everyone's got multiple degrees. Washington state, my state was number 46 on beneficiaries. And in my district, I think it's one out of four people in my district has a college degree. Like I have Seattle in Washington state, right? So my district was just on the very tail end of who would have benefited. And like, I was just spending a bunch of time with um, paraeducators from rural schools. We don't have air conditioning in many of our rural schools. And, you know, like, you, you've got kids trying to learn in a classroom that's 90 degrees inside. And somebody believes that we should be spending $600 billion on forgiving post-secondary and, you know, graduate degree debt. I just have, a, I have my special guest here is just... Uh, oh, I,
0: was, I was like, is it going to be a chicken? Right. Uh, no, it's a ch- Hey, buddy. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, my my yeah. five-year-old has made a couple appearances on this podcast. So it's all good. What's his name?
1: This is Cito. Cito.
0: Cito. I wanna I wanna ask you about student loans, but just, you know, on the side with that, I mean, is there somebody that you look at and you're like, man, they're doing a really great job in Congress? Like somebody that you are trying to model yourself after or
1: uh, I didn't come to Congress because I'm like trying to model myself after politicians, you know. Like that's not who I, you know.
0: Is there somebody you've really got along with?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So I am now co chairing the Blue Dogs with Jared Golden and Mary Paltola. They are the only Democrats that hold seats that are more Trumpy than mine. Jared's been doing it since 2018. And so we're all from fishing and, and timber communities. So... It's good to have people that you know know how to run a chainsaw and like know what know what it means to try to find daycare in a rural community and like all of those things.
0: Yeah, obviously the daycare issue is uh is happening live here. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. it's not cheap. We just moved from Oakland to New Orleans, and uh, yeah, the childcare yeah. thing is definitely real. Just really quick, back to the student loan issue. Really, um, everything that you said, I'm totally in line with. I disagreed with the Biden executive order, and I do think. That a college has gotten insanely expensive, and there are certain jobs, also important jobs, nurses, oh, my
1: God. teachers,
0: yes. prosecutors, and defenders. You know, public are serv- like that. They, they need to post second secondary degrees, and then their salaries can't afford them. Right. So, like, what is there another thing that you think that we should be doing in that space that's different from what you voted against?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that is the biggest story that no one's talking about. Thank you for <laughs> pointing that out you push him on the swing? That'll help. (laughs) I was born in 1988. And since I was born, tuition has increased 481%, which is crazy. If you look at something like, I think it's something like 4% of people enrolled or uh, employed in higher ed are graphic designers. Only 33% of people working in higher ed are actually educators. Like there's been so much administrative bloat, so much bloat in terms of recruitment and advertising and just, (sighs) Fundraise like all of these things. And it's been really frustrating to feel like somehow the narrative went from like, how do we make college affordable and demand accountability for to, oh, like, let's just write a blank check and hope the problem goes away for this discrete set of people. It's like, I don't want party favors for discrete age ranges. I want systemic reform of education. And I think that there are ways that it could have been structured to be actually, like, progressive. But the way that Biden wrote that bill, it was it was a regressive policy.
0: Some people throw out, and I think Biden's for this, too, like, uh, I might have the number on, but something like, you know, there's a 5% of your salary cap that you have to pay back. You don't just get it wiped away, but if you're a teacher and you're only making 40 grand a year, then you only have to pay 5% of that, right? Like, there are other ways to kind of model it. But I don't. is, is there anything in particular that you've heard about or just... Yeah,
1: I mean... So income-based, you know, that's one thing. Actually, I just heard about a program in Korea that I thought was super interesting. I mean, whatever, this is kind of... But so in Korea, like, say that there are 100 graphic, you know, there's spots for 100 graphic designers. When they graduate, when those 100 people graduate, the next round, like, if only 85 of them get a job as a graphic designer in that first year after graduating, the next class entering is limited to 85 yeah. so that there's more of like a market when you're investing reasons that people aren't being misled, that there's all right. these jobs out there when there aren't. There's just a huge lack of transparency and accountability. And like, what is an interest rate? What does compounding interest do to, you know, what does the job market look like? What are your chances of actually graduating more transparency, more accountability for Institutions that are taking federal dollars is really necessary.
0: I wanted to ask you, running out of time, the big Tommy Tuberville, the abortion issue, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around this. I know you ran as a pro-choice candidate. I think another thing that some people on the left were mad at you about was kind of this vote. About the broader military budget, you know, because it, it included this Republican fix where it's like, no, the military shouldn't pay for people to travel to abortion, to have access to abortion. I, I, what is your just take on that whole controversy, both at the Tommy Tuberville and, and kind of what's in the bill?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the way that billed, and NDA, you know, it came to the floor is like, there's the bill text and then it, all these like crazy amendments that came in, these like very toxic, like Chip Roy, you know. And I voted against every one of the crazy amendments. But ultimately, we know like the legislative process is that it's going to the Senate, where it's going to get cleaned up, and we're going to get a rational defense bill back. And so I ultimately felt like it's a mistake to not fund our military into like this posture of like, we're going to be torn apart and not fund our military and give the troops the raise that they deserve. So, you know, ultimately, I, you know, expect that we'll get a cleaned up version back from the Senate and I look I look forward to voting on that and you know like cinema and tuberville talking about some kind of whatever we know that Biden's never going to sign a bill that actually restricts abortion access it's not fact based thinking
0: and just the policy on the merits is just insane
1: oh yeah it's terrible <laughs> i mean yeah
0: I love this. We had Abigail Spanberger on a couple months ago, and she was citing a positive thing with Chip Roy, and like now you're slagging him. So I'm like, Chip Roy's just catching strays on this podcast all the time. Okay, you've got your (laughs) child. We do we do a rapid fire at the end. Two rapid fires. I'm gonna let you get back to parenting. All right, are you ready? The first one, everybody gets something that you've changed your mind about as a grown up.
1: Mm. Well, I didn't think I was gonna join any ideological caucuses, and then I found this opportunity and did, and I really enjoyed the Blue Dogs. And what it's becoming, which I think is a very powerful. So that's one thing. But you know, six months in, it's more about like learning more than necessarily like, changing opinions on.
0: on um, yeah, tell Jared to come hang out. I'm I'm very, I'm also interested in, in the stuff you guys are doing. Um, All right, the final one um, on on the website for Dean's Car Care. It says uh, preventative maintenance is sexy, and so I'd like to close by asking, what is the sexiest type of maintenance that you can do on a car?
1: Changing your oil. I don't know who needs to hear this. But change your oil, Tim, is it you? Yes, it's me. Uh, I can't tell you how many new cars I've seen blown up because people don't change their oil. Check your oil regularly.
0: (laughs) So I lost connection with Congressman Glusenkamp-Perez right as I was being mocked for my inability to change oil or change a tire going to say maybe that was on purpose. Maybe it was an accident. We'll never really know. I'm so appreciative, though, that uh, she came on the pod. Find her super interesting. And we'll see you on Wednesday for the next level with me and JVL and Sarah. And then in two Sundays for our next special guest. Peace.